Drew was down with his wife and kids for a few days at the beginning of the month. And he said to me, I don't know how to get my golf together. And on the way around, he said, you know, I've got one great problem. And what's that? He said, I'm getting more like you every day. <laughs> so he's trying to rebel against that, but he's fighting a losing battle, I think. I'm going to read from the book of Deuteronomy as we continue our story in the life of Joshua. Just a, a short reading from Deuteronomy chapter 31. Verse 7. Deuteronomy 31, verse 7. Don't worry, Richard. I'll, I'll read it. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And then the first couple of verses of Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. And that will form our study for this morning's talk. Great to be with you. And uh, for those of you who have been praying for Vicky, our youngest daughter, she was delivered of a baby girl. Uh, don't ask me the date. A fortnight ago. And... Uh, on Saturday, a tiny wee girl, her first child, 10 pounds, one ounce. So thank you for your prayers, and we thank the Lord for a, a safe delivery. I always love coming back here because some of you give the impression after the service that you'll be listening. Uh, a lot of places that I go to, that doesn't happen. So it's a great encouragement to come back, and thank you again for the invitation to be here. You may remember when we were last together, we were looking at the story of the beginning of this journey, which is about to come to fruition here, as we read it in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua chapter 1. The Israelites had come to this point 40 years earlier, and as we thought about, had refused to enter the land, even though they knew that it was God's will that they should do that. God had promised his people in previous generations that he was going to give, bring them back to the land that Abram had come into many generations previously. And God had said to Abram and to Isaac, I'm going to give you this land um, and you will take on their responsibility for its functioning. But the people didn't believe God and they refused to believe Joshua and Caleb who had come back with a really good report and said, listen, this land is exactly as the Lord has told us. It's very fruitful. It's a land which is flowing with milk and honey. 
And they brought back proof of that. They brought back a big cluster of grapes and some pomegranates and other things that they'd found in the land when they searched it out. But still the people refused to accept that this was what God wanted for them. And it's always a danger, isn't it, to assume we know better than God, to assume that modern science has somehow other made the need for God uh, something which is no longer necessary. And yet our land, our country, and the world in general, in general constantly demonstrates that what it needs is a leader, and what it needs is to be brought back again under the authorship of the God who created it. And we keep making new rules and setting up different schemes of things to try to get the world to work. And yet constantly it demonstrates that men can't work without God, however much they try to. And so we seem to live in this constant state of flux. And the only thing that men seem to be any good at designing is weaponry. But it would be a terrible message to be talking about doom and gloom like that when such a passage is before us, as we've read in these few verses this morning. It's interesting that Moses lays the responsibility upon Joshua in the focus of all the people. And the Bible is very specific here in Deuteronomy 31. He summons Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel. And leadership is going to function, has to function at both ends. The leader has to be someone who's being directed by God and responsive to him. And if he's going to be functional within the realms of responsibility where God has placed him, that has to be clearly outlined to the congregation or to the nation or whatever it is that that particular person is going to be responsible to. So this sort of example, I think, is very important and important also in church life. It's very dangerous to appoint elders that the church does not recognize or to appoint leaders that the church does not recognize. And we we constantly are faced, I think, with the recognition that if we're members of a church, we have responsibility to support our leadership and to work with them and function under their direction as the Lord helps them. Uh, It seems to me that this sort of every man for himself notion has become very evident in the life of the church ongoingly in the few years that I've lived on earth and been responsible in various ways for various aspects of ministry. So the leadership is recognized by the nation as Moses makes this appointment. And then he says a, a number of things to Joshua, and I want to pick these up, if I may, and just emphasize them a little into our own hearts this morning. This recurrent theme of being strong and courageous is something that's repeated again and again. We'll see it again tonight when we come further into Joshua chapter 1. But this whole question of being strong and courageous is the uttermost requirement in leadership. Not strong in our own strength, because the Apostle Paul says, when I'm weak, then I am strong because your grace is sufficient for me. It's not about being strong because we say, oh, we can do this. But we're strong because we recognize that our responsibility in leadership is to bring men and women under the authority of our master. 
You know, this whole question of the nation moving into the land of Canaan at this time was fraught with danger. They were facing all sorts of issues. They had no chariots. They had no boats to get across the River Jordan, and yet they were going to require to cross it when it was a mile wide. They were constantly going to be faced with issues that they couldn't handle. And it's only as we're strong in the Lord that there is any possibility of these things being worked through. This, This whole area that they were moving into was extremely dangerous. But there's also this whole question of courage. Uh, Jill and I went to see the film Dunkirk on Monday night of this week and found it very intense and recognized something of the courage of the individuals who are portrayed in that particular film. And courage is not, um, not recognizing danger. Courage is working through the aspects of danger which we face. Courage is not not being fearful. Courage is dealing with the fear that we feel. And, and you and I are called as men and women, as Christian men and women of her followers of the Lord, to be strong and courageous for him, not because we're not afraid, but because we are afraid. Courage is the expression of strength through our fearfulness. And th- this statement which is made, be strong and courageous, has sort of been burning itself. In fact, I wakened this morning at 10 to 5, and this was the phrase that was in my mind, be strong and courageous, because I'm often given messages to preach that I don't want to preach, because I know folk are going to find it difficult to listen. Not that you don't always find it difficult to listen to me, but you know th- this whole question of, of recognizing in every phase of life, in every phase of our Christian life, you know, you go into work tomorrow, and the, the men and women who work there know you, and it's very difficult at times whenever issues arise. You say, well, actually, because I'm a Christian, I'm not. Or because I'm a Christian, I am going to do such and such and so and so. It should color, as has already been emphasized this morning, color our whole lives, this fact that we are following the Lord Jesus. After all, he died for us. So shouldn't we make ourselves available to him? That was C.T. Studd's watchword, Great England cricketer, when he, he went to India as a missionary. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, can any sacrifice that I make for him, can any sacrifice, can any sacrifice be too great that I make for him? And that's what it's about. Be strong and courageous. And then you have the next phrase. I'm going to take this more or less phrase by phrase by me this morning. For you must go. You can almost hear Joshua say, I don't want to do this. You must, and it's an imperative. You must go with this people into the land. You must go. When I was a youngster and uh, facing certain issues in my life, I went to see a very wise man. And uh, I said to him, look, these are one or two of the things that I'm facing. And he said, what are you talking to me about them for? 
And I said, well, I just wanted to share them with someone. He said, talk to the Lord about them because you must face these issues on your own. You've got to sort these things out on your own. You must face them on your own. It's a must. You must go. And I don't know what the Lord's been talking to you about this week or the last two or three weeks, but if it's something which is burning itself into your consciousness, then you must do it. And you must not make excuses for not doing it. If you're absolutely sure it's of the Lord, then do it. You must go. In Joshua's case, there was nobody else. We'll see in just a moment or two that I'm sure he didn't feel up to it for various reasons. But, you know, you must go. But you must go with this people. Now, Joshua had had 40 years with this people. And there were 40 years in the wilderness because of what this people had decided not to do in their previous generation. How do you think he felt? This lot for the rest of my life. But this is a together business, you know. There's absolutely no point in Joshua going into the land because he couldn't do what God wanted him to do without leading the people, without being with the people. You've got to go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. Responsibility is a fearful thing, isn't it? You must. You must do it. You'll notice that there's no blueprint given. You know, the Lord doesn't say to you and me, I want you to take this step with me, and if you take this step, I'll show you the next one. It never works like that. No, it's been my privilege to be a Christian for 65 years because I'm even older than Ray, right? And I say with all my heart and my limited experience, the various places the Lord has taken Jill and I and, and, and so forth down our lives and the things we've had to commit to him that we haven't been able to handle, he has always been uh, engaged with us. And as we have taken a step then the next step has been revealed. You don't get a blueprint. You younger folk who are here this morning, you know, you don't get a blueprint about how to bring up your family. You have to bring up your family day by day as the Lord helps you. You start your period of work and you don't know where it's going to lead, but you just feel, well, here's something the Lord has laid in front of me, something I'm going to do. And maybe two or three or five or ten years down that track, the Lord will take you in an entirely different direction. And, and the edge and the joy in Christian living comes from taking that step and the next step when it's shown. It's not to run ahead of the Lord and then tell him, I want you to bless it. I think a whole lot of us as Christians do that, you know. We say, I'm going to do this, Lord. Please bless it. I mean, what's that about? That's backside foremost, isn't it? Once the Lord has shown you where to go and you take a step with them, he will bless it. And if I'm running ahead of him and trying to do A, B, and C because I think that's what I ought to do and telling to him to bless it and he hasn't shown me that particular step, then why is he going to bless it? And so often we get into this sort of uh, perspective 
that whenever we're, we're us, you know, we, we do what we do, rather than saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Apostle Paul's first word after conversion. You read his story in Acts chapter 9. Lord, what do you want me to do? Go into the city, and it will be shown you what you have to do. You know, I'll show you the next step, go into the city. And then it will be shown you what you have to do. And it's getting back, I believe, to these first principles that, that the reason that this story of Joshua is so much in my heart at the minute. Because you can look back on 65 years of Christian experience and think, you know it all. I know nothing. I know someone. And it's knowing the someone that is how this works its, its, its way through. You know, get into the habit when you get up in the morning and say, just say, Lord, I have no idea. If you have any idea what's going to happen today, I know what your plans are. And you hope you're going to have a lunch. I'm going to hope I'm going to have a lunch. But, you know, beyond that, every breath that I take, it's in his hands. Whenever Daniel was speaking to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, that he says to Belshazzar, you know, the God, the God in whose hand your breath is, have you not honored? And I can remember when I was ill, for the only time in my life that I know about, years and years ago, and saying to the Lord, why has this happened? And I'd been preaching in that particular passage eight or ten weeks earlier and never heard it. You know, preachers don't often hear what they preach. The God in whose hand your breath is. Well, Lord, if you kept me to the day, then that's fine. So why is the Lord taking them into the land in the middle of this verse? Because he has promised. You know, you're, you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. God has said to Abraham, you go right back to Genesis 12. And you discover there that God says to Abraham, I want you to get out of your own country and I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to take you into the land which you will afterwards receive for your inheritance. Way back then, 460 years earlier approximately, way back then God had said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Abraham never saw it other than walking through it as he lived there. But he never saw the fruition of the fulfillment of the inheritance. But because God had sworn it, it was set in stone. It was bound to be fulfilled. And you younger people, can I encourage you to get back again to that first principle. If God has said he will do something, he always does it. The scripture tells us elsewhere it's impossible for God to lie. And I know a whole lot of Christians and they really struggle with trusting the Lord. Why are we like that? You know, as I'm saying, 65 years a Christian and still finding it difficult to, to just trust the Lord for the next step. It's daft, isn't it? We know he's faithful and we know he can't lie. And he gives it a promise. You're going to be with the Lord one day. 
And in spite of what Ray said this morning, that's going to be a whole lot better than the presence of the Lord that we have now. And I'm not decrying that in the slightest. But Paul had a desire to be with Christ, which was far better. So he knew the presence of the Lord here, but to be with Christ, to be in the presence of Christ in that sense, and the reality of that immediacy, from Paul's perspective, was to be far better. Now, Ray's going to talk to me about this afterwards, and that's fine. But, you know, that, that, that's where it's at. And sometimes we get so taken up with this life and what we're doing in this life that we forget that the Lord is preparing us for the life that is to come. And that's ultimately what it's about. But you have to take them in divided among them as their inheritance. Now, notice the, the, the word which is given to Joshua is, you must go. And then you'll notice in verse 8, the Lord himself goes before you. Now, I don't know how often I've looked at this, these particular verses, but for some reason, when I wakened this morning at 10 to 5, I, th- I thought, I'm going to check that. And the word which is used for go in verse 7 is different from the word which is translated for goes before in verse 8. You must go, and it's the sense of you must go into the land and keep on going, divide it to them for an inheritance. The word which is used of the Lord here is often used in Hebrew whenever someone is going out to battle. Interesting. Life ended interesting this morning. The Lord himself goes before you. He's the vanguard. He's the one who's leading the way. Later on, we'll see in this particular story when uh, the Lord appears to Joshua and Joshua's looking at Jericho and the big problem that Jericho provided. Joshua says to the person who meets him, is it, are you come to support us? Is that why you've come? And the person who he sees says, no, it is as captain of the Lord's host that I'm, I'm now come. And that's the thought here. The Lord is the captain. The Lord's the boss. The Lord's the general. We're the foot soldiers. But unlike many of our generals, the Lord doesn't stay in the background. The Lord is in the forefront. It's the Lord who leads. He, he goes before you. What an encouragement to, to Joshua. And you'll notice it, it's not some minion, and I use the term carefully, of the Lord. It's not some servant of the Lord. It's the Lord himself goes before you. Jehovah, you see the capital letters there in the verse. That that means Jehovah. And the the word Jehovah normally means in Scripture the one who keeps his promise. So here's someone who's going to take Joshua and the people into the land. Joshua with the responsibility of leadership. The people with the responsibility of following. But the Lord himself is the boss. And when you come to Ephesians chapter 5, you discover that the Apostle Paul teaches the same emphasis. The Lord, uh, chapter 4, Ephesians 4, the Lord is the head of the church. You know, there's no head of the church on earth, and there's no bosses in the church on earth. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who's the head. It's the Lord who's the leader. And it's brought before us so, so clearly here. So the Lord himself goes before you as one in the battle, and will be with you. And he will never leave you, nor forsake you. 
So don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. So where did this statement start? Be strong and courageous. And it closes with, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Why? Because he will never leave you nor forsake you. Because he's leading the way. So whatever you're going to face, Joshua, whatever the people are going to face, recognize inevitably that the Lord is going to give you this land. And it's going to be for your inheritance. And I said to you earlier that I think Joshua was somewhat reluctant. So let's go to Joshua chapter 1 as I close this morning. Those two great aspects of, Christian, of our Christian pathway, the Lord going before and the Lord being with us. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, who was Moses' servant or Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. So this responsibility and leadership was absolutely clear. He had had the word from Moses, and he had the representation before the people. But this is something different, you'll notice. God doesn't speak to Joshua about this whole issue until after Moses is dead. Moses had spoken to Joshua about the Lord, but the Lord doesn't speak to Joshua about this issue until after Moses is dead. Now notice what it says. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you. Now then, you. There's always a challenge tomorrow, isn't there? There's always a challenge tomorrow. I can remember as the Lord gradually removed the, the great Christian props that had been a huge help to me in my earlier life. Among them, as I mentioned, my father, my grandfather, grandmother, and so on. My grandfather was the first to go. He died in 1958. Um, he, was, he was the one I went to to ask all the theological questions I had. And there were a whole bunch of them. You know, when you're 15, or by the time you get to 15, you think you know most things. By the time you get to 19, you realize that your grandparents or, or your father or mother have learned a lot in the meantime. But when you're 15, you know everything, or nearly everything. But I had a whole lot of big hang-ups in, in Christian theology and so on, even at that age. And I used to ask him the sort of questions that one of my grandchildren asked me recently. How does the world stay up? You know, that's a deep theological question, isn't it? Why does the world, why does the earth maintain its position in space? Why does it maintain its orbits as it do? Because the orbits change. Why does, why does an animal breed after its own kind? I watched a program on the oak this week. Any of you see it? A great Scottish bug man whose name I can never remember. Dr. George 
Anybody help me? Anyway, I spent an hour and a half looking at the oak. And at one point during that particular uh, series of, of talks, he held an acorn up. And he said this. He said, isn't evolution remarkable? That, now listen, that all of the information for the next generation of oaks, of oak, is all contained in this little seed, as he called the acorn at that time. Isn't it remarkable? And the poor man didn't recognize what he was saying. Because the detail for the oak is contained in the acorn. Therefore, the tree must have been created first. Otherwise, the information wouldn't be in the acorn. And when you read Genesis chapter 1, you discover that the Lord created the trees and instructed them to bear fruit after their kind. So the wonder is not that the detail is contained in the acorn, but the tree in producing its fruit details the acorn so that the next tree will carry the characteristics of the previous one. And that's why you get oak from acorns. Moses, my servant, is dead. His work's finished, the Lord says to Joshua. But my work isn't finished. The Lord's work doesn't finish. And as the Lord took away the props, took away my grandfather, took away one of my uncles who was hugely important to me in my early Christian development, and so forth and so on, I recognized more and more that I had to rely upon the Lord. And you and I need to get back to this awareness. Here's Joshua facing an issue that no man had ever faced before, taking a nation into a country without boats, without real experience of warfare, to attack the most fortified cities of their generation. How is he going to do it? The Lord doesn't give him the blueprint. He just says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, the Israelites. And they hadn't got any boats, and the Jordan's a mile wide at this particular point during harvest time. Told that later on in the book of Joshua. That's how I know it's true. How do they get across the Jordan? That's another story. But God is leading them. And all that Joshua has to do is do what he's told. You know? Just do what you're told. You and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give to them. So who owns the world? Does America own a bit of it, and Russia own a bit of it, and Japan own a bit of it, and Britain own a bit of it? In my late teens, I started to sing some solos with a, a guy who was doing the preaching called Hedley Murphy. And Hedley Murphy was quite a famous preacher in Northern Ireland at that time, and elsewhere in the north of England. And I was singing with him one particular period for a fortnight in a, a tent on the outskirts of Liverpool. 
And he got up on the first evening, Sunday evening, and his opening statement for that particular mission was, I own the world. And there were many raised eyebrows, as some are doing now. And then he proceeded for about 15 minutes to talk about what his faith meant. And he quoted, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Lord says of himself. I own the cattle. And the farmer says, well, actually, I own the cattle. And the Lord says, no, actually, I own the cattle. You see what I'm saying? Now, often in our Christian thinking, we, we get into this view that God has got a package out here, you know, and it, it's, it's the holy bit, yeah? And, and God calls us to be into this particular scenario, and he, works us, he wants us to work within that element. The Lord wants us to work in his earth. That's why he's called us to himself. Because he wants to give us that which will be a blessing to us and, uh, and the ministry that he's giving us to do. Joshua was going to experience things in the days ahead which are miracles. And never be afraid as a Christian of miracle. But don't tell God what the miracle has got to be. Yeah? It's up to him. Because he's the God of miracles. He's the God of ownership. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness are off, which is where Hedley Murphy eventually got to. And then he said, I'm an heir of Christ and Christ is the Son of God. And he got into the whole sort of chat down this line. And then he asked me to sing How Great Thou Art. But, you know, this whole question of having, having a broad enough vision and a big enough God which recognizes that this is who God is, is the key to experiencing the reality and power of God in your life. You make God the size that you want him to be, and that's the size he is. He will demonstrate at times that he's far greater than that. And he'll break into your life in such a way where he'll demonstrate that he's far greater than that. But generally speaking, we are bound by our perspective of how God is and how great he is or is not. And the thing is born into me at the age of whatever I am, is you just, you know, the longer I live, the greater I perceive God to be. The longer I live, the greater I perceive him to be. And what Joshua is told here is, don't ask for the nuts and bolts, just do the bits. Don't ask the Lord to, to show or demonstrate what he's going to do according to your perspective, but just say to the Lord, just do, just do, just be. Just exercise yourself in my life to your glory. Just do what you want with me. You created me. You know what I'm like. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Those great words at the beginning of Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah turns around and says to God, but I'm only a youngster. I'm only a, youngster. I'm only a young person. And the Lord effectively says to him, look, you'll do what you're told. And he does, and it's a lonely journey for Jeremiah. And he spends 55 years in ministry and is then killed for his faithfulness to God. What does it matter? Because he's done what the Lord required him to do, and the Lord has used his death to take him into 
his deeper experience of his presence. The Lord bless you. Thank you for listening. And I trust we'll just follow the Lord a bit more closely in the days ahead. We're going to pray together and then we'll sing our closing song. Let's pray.